0: All right, so tonight we want to talk about the common good. And to start our discussion, I'd like you to imagine a curious situation. I'd like you to imagine that you are um, a Viking. And we're in the later time of the Vikings when we've already Christianized a whole bunch of them. So let's say you're one of these Christianized ones, and you set off to explore, and you have landed on Iceland. No one's ever been to Iceland before. There's no people there. There's nothing but ice, rock, dirt, and maybe a few animals. And when you get there, you're very excited. You name it Iceland, you're the sole person on the island, you build yourself a cabin, uh, establish a farm, dig a well, and start the very beginnings of what we might think of as civilization. A few months later, I come along on a ship, and I see you having already established your little settlement there, and I give you a big wave, and then I go up on a neighboring hill, and I build a cabin for myself, build a farm, same deal. And I'd like you to think about a situation like this with you and me on our hills in Iceland glancing at each other every now and then, maybe meeting up for food. Would we have any duties to one another? And I want you to remember, there's no governing authority here. There's no government of Iceland. There's no police. There's no structures of any kind governmental. So, for example, let's suppose that I slipped into your pasture one night and I took three of your cows Do you think that would be acceptable? Anyone wish to venture a response? I'm going to go with no. That probably wouldn't be. (laughs) All right. Not acceptable. And why? Why do you think that would be problematic? Doesn't seem very neighborly. No, it doesn't seem very neighborly, right? And even if there's no government, don't we still think theft is theft? Right? The more law obtains, even if there is no civic law, it's still wrong for me to steal your cows, isn't it? Or again, let's imagine you're out one day cutting down a tree. And you make a mistake in the way you chop. And lo and behold, the tree mostly lands on you rather than where you wanted it to land. Now I just happened by at that very moment I see you there underneath the tree. And if I laugh at you and race toward your house yelling natural selection, natural selection, natural selection, right? Get your house and start grabbing everything of yours that I've always had my eye on, figuring, you know, Darwinism has done its deed, gotten rid of the less survival probable person. Does that strike you as uh, acceptable? Or do you think I should be doing something else? And if so, what and why? I mean, you should help. I mean, it's just it's the right thing to do. Right, right. And if we were English, we call it the decent thing to do. We call it the neighborly thing to do in America, or it's the right thing to do. If you see somebody stuck under a tree, you help them get out from under that tree, right? If they broke broken a limb, you figure, well, i got to splint this thing somehow. Take them to their house, you're going to put them on a little stretcher and take them back. All the principles of the Good Samaritan come to mind here. It's the exact similar case. So it's amazing that in a situation with no government whatsoever, we fully recognize the duties of neighbors to one another. Duties that we might describe as negative in that they tell us what we should not do. I shouldn't kill you. I shouldn't steal from you, right? And other duties that we might describe as positive because they tell me what I ought to do by way of something positive for you, like helping you when you get stuck under a tree, coming by to make sure you're okay and give you a meal while you slowly heal, taking care of you in those kind of a situation. And so we talk about these positive and negative duties, which of course we can translate into a different kind of language, the language of rights, And we realize that you have a right not to be thieved. You have a right not to be killed. And it's my duty as a person of the same sort of person that you are, namely being both human. I realize, well, I wouldn't want you to do that to me. Therefore, I ought not to do that to you. And this, of course, if you remember, is the golden rule. Or in our more Christian version, it's do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the second greatest commandment. And all without any government present. Now, I want us to really think about the significance of that because it is profound what follows from that. If rights and duties are pre-governmental, if they pre-exist government, it follows that there is a natural moral law that is prior and foundational to all civic law. That's why we speak of natural rights and natural law. Because these rights derive from our nature. They derive from our natural state. Ultimately, they derive from the author of nature, who of course is God. Because all authority is ultimately sourced from God himself. And it obtains whether we're in a state or outside of a state. Government, accordingly, may not undermine these rights or duties. On the contrary, government can be judged by those rights and duties. Let that sink in. Government may not undermine those rights and duties, and it can be judged by them. Hence, governments are legitimate only if they preserve these rights. Now, let's think a little bit further into this situation in Iceland. Because this Icelandic state, this state of nature, if you will, isn't exactly what you'd consider the ideal human situation, right? What's missing right away, you notice? What did, what did we I fail to bring in my little scenario setup that no Viking would ever be without? What you can't possibly have civilization wise if you don't have these additional elements, right? What are they? You have to have wives and children. Right, And every Viking settlement had their boat packed with wives and children if they were settlers. Warriors, different story, right? Raiders. But settlers, you always have to bring families. And human beings are filled with a desire for fulfillment that exists on a much broader scale than what you find with other creatures. So let's suppose, for example, you're a cow. Your desire all day is to munch grass and look at the equipment that you've been provided for to do that, right? You've got munching teeth. You have hooves that help you stay in the grass. You have something like what? Six or seven stomachs to digest and make milk. The entire system is perfect given your needs, which are very limited. So limited means limited needs. Now take by contrast, the lion. The lion has much more ravenous hunger, much greater desire. But then look at his equipment compared to a cow. Lions have great powerful teeth, right? Big claws, that clever eyesight, silent silent, feet falls, footfalls. So he has much greater desires and he has equipment to match. Now what's interesting is when you contrast these two animals with us, we have the greatest, most expanded desire of any creature that we know. Right, what do human beings want to do? We want to explore the depths of the ocean. We want to fly through the air. We want to build tall skyscrapers into the air. We want to build the internet. You can't even see it. We want to build it. And ultimately, we went to the moon and we want to go to Mars. And that's not the end. We want to go to strange new worlds, right, to explore them. So look at our capability, though. I mean, your feet aren't very silent. When it comes to fur, you're rather pathetic. Mm-hmm. Look at your claws. You say, well, I don't call them claws. I call them fingernails. Yes. Right? And as for your eyesight and hearing and your teeth, when was the last time you dug into a raw rabbit that was running around along a field? You say, well, well that'd be tough. Yeah, that'd be really tough. In other words, you are a pathetic excuse for a creature. Aren't you? You say, yeah, but... Uh, we, make, we human beings, we make up for it because we work together, right? And we use this powerful brain and we can do things that creatures like lions cannot do. Exactly. But only in what? Community. Only with other people. In other words, this is the principle I'm trying to establish. Human beings need one another for our fulfillment. Our ultimate objectives in the natural world and then in the communal world but ultimately in the divine is something that's so massive, so huge, we need one another in order to get there. As such, we say that man is essentially social. And we require society for our fulfillment because society allows us to be united by a principle that aims us toward objectives and provides us with resources that we would never have been able to achieve as individuals. So let's think about society. Back to Iceland, right? Right. What's the first form of society that we would see being present after the individual's land? What's our first natural form of society? A town. Okay, it would be a town, but first we gotta get our family, yeah? Maybe you think I already put that into the scenario. So, yes, a family is first, and then we'd have our town and all of our friends, correct? So the first type of association, the first form of society is the family. The next is friendship. And then the third moves into more the towny idea, because when you say town, there's, that's loaded, right? Because when we think of towns, we think of some sort of civil structure. And so we have to talk about the political, in other words, the state. So let me switch to share screen. right, hopefully you can see this now. And we have three whoops fundamental forms of human society necessary for the fulfillment of our natures. Family, friendship, state. And by the way, by the term state, since we're talking an Icelandic case, yes, it can be something as small as the town or the city-state, all the way to something as large as a nation-state that we think of these days. All right. Now, it's interesting that the state pops up so quickly, because why is it so important that we bring to bear the state? What does the state enable that family and friendship are just a little insufficient? And to help us think about this, let's go back to my original example, me stealing your cows. Let's suppose you catch me stealing those cows. What are you liable to do about that? Take your cows back? Yeah, I would think you're probably going to take those cows back. What if it turns out that you see two cows... And one of them nicely carved up, a big fire, and an empty plate, and my face covered with just delicious steak juices running down both sides. What then? Probably looking for some sort of justice. Yeah, probably some justice, some payback, right? You took my cow, I'm going to have to take out of your hide, right? Or some sort of compensation. I see you got some pretty fine-looking chickens over there, right? So we have this idea that if you take what does not belong to you, you must proportionately repay what was taken, right? And of course, that's our fundamental theory of justice, or punishment. Although punishment, we always add a little bit extra to make it, as Locke famously said, an ill bargain for the offender. If you only take exactly back what was taken, then the criminal hasn't lost anything and he's emboldened to try it again but not get caught the next time. So there's always two elements, reparation and a little bit extra for restraint. The problem, of course, is that we're liable when someone steals our cows to get mad. And when we get angry, we're not necessarily thinking in terms of strict limits of proportional punishment, are we? We might just go beyond measure. And so we have this idea, and one of the values of jurisprudence is we say, well, cooler heads should prevail. And so one of the great benefits of civil society is that we take out of the hands of the injured party the determination and execution of justice. Because the injured party is understandably irate. So... It helps cooler heads prevail, cool passions down. So one of the great benefits of a civil society is the ability to sort things out by means of courts. Criminal cases, but also the ordinary disputes and things that require resolution, like uh, matters of property borderlines, questions of inheritance, issues of marriage. All these sorts of things require some civil structure to help adjudicate and order them for everybody so everyone knows. And that's one of the great benefits of a civil society. Again, another great benefit of the state is that if you have a nice little town, it's doing well, you might just find yourself a target for other people. And so how do you protect yourself against foreign invaders? If it's just me on my hill and you on yours, we're going to have a time of it, right? Stopping 30 warriors who suddenly come out of nowhere and attack us. But when you have a town, you could have a fort. You could have people, experts in different types of things. Maybe you're great with swords and I'm great with arrows. So the point is we can divide our labor. We can become more effective. And so those are some of the what we might call the the negative, helping us to curb crime and helping us to curb enemy attack that come from belonging to a state, something we would not be able to do simply on our own. But there are also positive state benefits. Right? Because the state enables us to aggregate our abilities and powers, not just for our common defense, but for all kinds of deeply human common endeavors. Like, for example, the uh, arts. You're uh, wanting us to see your screen. It's not sharing. Crap. Let me try that again. Is it working now? Yes. Okay. So I said, see, did you ever know that I wrote family, friendship, and state on here? So there's family, friendship, and state, as I said earlier. And the state allows for the aggregation of all these talents for all these common endeavors, such as the arts, right? When do you find individuals living in the state of nature who are heavily involved in the arts, right? This doesn't happen. You find the arts in city-states where you have leisure time, right? That's why the Athenians were able to produce such incredible art or, say, Florence during the Renaissance. Um, Not just the arts, but what about universities, libraries, all the elements of education? What about medicine? How in the world are you going to create a world-class hospital system by yourself, How about industry? right? How about exploration? How about charity? All of these things are made possible on a much greater level because you have the state as an ordering principle that enables people to be brought together and combine their resources and their talents and achieve these deeply human activities. So, The state permits many positive elements that help us fulfill our humanity and with our humanity, our specific spiritual vocation, that's what the church calls it, our spiritual vocation, which is ultimately to know God and to love him face to face. But here's something that's really interesting. Insofar as we're in the state of nature, we are all equal under the natural law. We're viewing ourselves as simple, individual human beings, and if I possess any right in virtue of my humanity, then you similarly possess exactly the same right insofar as you're a human being. If I have any positive claims on you insofar as I'm a human being, you possess exactly the same ones because there's a perfect reciprocity based on the fact that we're all equally human. But here's what's interesting in the state of civil society, while we remain equal under the natural, and if you have a decent society, civil law, we nevertheless are vastly different with respect to our inheritance, our education, our wealth, and our talents. We like to say that no two people are the same. We like to talk about how amazing it is that people are different. Well, if people are different, then it follows they're not equal. Right? If you're different from me, it follows that you might have a green thumb and I might kill all the plants that I touch. It might be the case that you're a chess master. And when I look at chess, I'm like, aren't there supposed to be just two colors, red and black, and they're all round, right? So difference implies that we're not the same at all, and we're absolutely going to have different strengths. Now, the church has a very interesting observation about that. The church says that the inequality in talents... is divinely ordered. God created it that way. Now that might strike you as odd. But think about why that might be important. Why might God create a system in which we have differing talents, we inherit different things from our families genetically, educationally, wealth-wise? And that some people just are better than other people at various things. Why might that be very important for human beings? Any ideas? Everyone has their own role to play in society. Everyone has their own role. And what follows from that? And that means that we need one another. God did not create human beings to be alone. Remember the principle he said of Adam? When God looked at the man, he knew that it was not good because he was alone. So the first thing God does is does what? He creates a companion. He creates Eve. Human beings are modeled on the Trinity. And that means that we were made for a community of love. What drives us into community? Need. So the fact that you're no good at chasing down rabbits and hitting them in the garden means that when you find the guy who is able to get the rabbits and he posts a great big store and puts the word Kroger on it, you're like, oh, this is much better, right? But then you make candles and they far better than anything they got at Kroger. And so the Kroger guy comes to your candle shop and someone else is an expert with engines, And when all of our buggies and engines and cars break down, we're all terrible. We're like, oh, no, not another lost engine, right? And you say, no, 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 bring it to my garage. I can fix anything. But then, of course, the guy who's trying to run a shop needs a computer, right, to keep it all managed. We're obviously advancing in tech here significantly in our storyline. But then you got people who are experts in computers. And the Kroger guy who knows how to run a grocery store doesn't know the first thing about computers. And the guy that runs the car doesn't know anything about computers. And the candle shop worker certainly doesn't know computers, right? And then on all of that, you need people like me who teach. And we're the most pathetic of all, because we can't do engines. We can't do groceries. We certainly can't make candles. Right? So we all have different sets of talents and capabilities. And what God wants us to see is how vital every single one of us are in the picture. If we were all the same, we'd be self-sufficient unto ourselves. If we were all the same, the best we'd ever achieve is mediocrity. Because if you do everything yourself, you're going to only do it each thing a little bit. And you'll be a farmer a little bit. You'll be a housemaker a little bit. You'll be a cobbler a little bit. You'll be an engineer a little bit. You'll be a grocer a little bit. And you'll be terrible at all those things. Whereas if you have a person who's an expert rabbit hunter, if you have someone who is an expert engine maker, repairman, right? Then you're going to get the best engines. You're going to get the best doctors. And that's what we want. We want a society where every single art hits his highest fulfillment. To do that, we need the division of labor. And the division of labor is based on the fact that we are naturally gifted at some things rather than others. And God created it that way because he wants us to teach us that we need one another, and that if we have more and we think we don't need one another, first of all, we're wrong. But if we have more, that's an opportunity to meet the needs of those who have Less. Because what you were born with in the world is not owing to your industry or your ingenuity. Right? It's a roll of the dice. So we can't really take credit for the fact that, you know, you have an ability to do this and someone else doesn't. That was a gift. And to whom much is given, much is required. Remember, all powers are given for the sake of those under them. So God gives us these talents and this radical inequality of capability— so that we can grow and become far better together than we ever would have been on our own. So if you have been granted much, God expects you to help those who have been granted less, to use your extraordinary talents, not just for yourself, but for the common good. And if on the other hand, if you have been granted less, God expects you to graciously accept the help of those who have more, resisting both the pride of the poor problem, you know, the person who says, well, I'm too good for charity. Right? That's a vice. Because you're not allowing somebody who has been given the strength to help the weak to help you. So you want to avoid that error, and then you want to avoid the other vice, which is the envy of the revolutionary who decides, I'm just going to take down the whole system. Revolutionaries are usually motivated by envy. Because we can't do it ourselves, and we don't have it, we're going to destroy everybody who does. And those two are serious errors. And the person who has much, you want to watch out, of course, for the vice of greed and pride. Vices will always get in the way of love. But if we recognize that we have been gifted with these these extraordinary talents, and that we are members of a community of love, then when we realize that our neighbor is under the tree his car broke down, then we're going to help. And that's what God expects us to do with these talents. All right. Now, with that in mind, let's think about the nature of our civic society. And its powers and limitations vis-a-vis the church and the family. Alright, states are legitimately formed by their citizens, both for the sake of the preservation of their natural rights, and for the sake of their human vocation of ultimately coming to know the love of God. And this is both individual, in the sense that you individually will seek the attitude and to know God, but it's also communal, because God takes in not just individuals into the kingdom of God, but communities, communities. as we know, because we're when you come into the church, you're a member of the Bride of Christ. And that is a the church, that's a group. God is interested in both orders. Now, every any rather any form of political regime is morally permissible. so long as it serves the legitimate good of the community that adopts it. Okay? Any form of political regime is permissibly, morally permissible so long as it serves the legitimate good of the community that adopts it. We do not judge regimes by their structure, We judge regimes by their ends, by their goals. Neither natural law nor the church requires that we create democracies. Note that. Neither natural law nor the church requires that we create democracies. Political communities may legitimately constitute themselves as monarchies, aristocracies, democracies, or republics. And those are the four classic political forms. You say, why are those the four classic political forms? Because the ancients understood that you could be ruled by the one, by the few, by the many, or by a mix of the one, the few, and the many. When you're ruled by the one, we call this monarchy. When you're ruled by the few, we call this aristocracy. When you're ruled by the many, we call this democracy and when you're ruled by a mixed regime that includes the one, the few, and the many in some complex mix, we call that a republic. Any or all of those regimes can preserve natural rights and help motivate and bring people to their spiritual good. Thus, it is not the form of the regime, but the conduct of the regime that we judge insofar as does that regime serve the political interests, and the individual rights, the common good of the people of that regime. People, peoples, rather, are as different from each other as people. And what follows from that is that different peoples are going to self-order themselves in different kinds of governments. So the Irish are different than the Russians who are different from the Indians, who are different from the Egyptians, who are different from the Peruvians. These are all different peoples. And every single people group is aware of their own strengths and weaknesses, vulnerabilities and powers. And they're going to pick forms of government that they think will best serve their interests. And intriguingly, this is actually also an American principle. John Adams wrote a book about the constitutions of the different states and talked about how each constitution of each state served the interests, the nature, the specific flavor and temperament of that individual state because that state represented a different people. The Pennsylvanians were different from the Georgians who were different from the New Hampshireans. And so the idea is government should reflect the spirit, quality, and culture of its people. So, recognizing that, the church doesn't say that we all ought to be, have democracies. Because democracies tend to work well only in very small city-states like ancient Athens. As soon as you get a large population, it's very difficult to get everyone to vote on every issue because that's what democracy is. And the church doesn't say that kings are prohibited. You could have a good king who actually guarantees natural rights and tries to do what's wise and good for his society. So we judge regimes, again, not by their form, but by their conduct. People can be free and live freely under a king. They can live under a parliament like Great Britain. They can live under a bicameral legislature like our own Congress. Or they could live under a full citizen assembly like ancient Athens. Similarly, they can be oppressed and tyrannized by any of those forms. We all know that you can have kings that are tyrants, right? Our American history definitely shows us this. But Iran today calls itself a democracy, all the while oppressing and limiting the freedoms of its people. China calls itself a republic, all the while, it's hard to find a more tyrannical regime, more totalitarian, in all the world currently. So we don't judge them by their names. We don't judge them by their structures. The question is, do these regimes protect the freedoms of people? Because those freedoms are essential for them to explode in their creativity and enhance their civilizations and ultimately grow into the full human vacation to be lovers of neighbor and lovers of God. So, how do we limit government? If not by the form, we limit it by its ends. Governments must serve the individual and common good to be legitimate. But we also limit governments by the means they employ to those ends. You can't say, well, I've got the just end and then I employ a tyrannical means. Just means and just ends is what makes a government legitimate. Keep in mind that when the church was formed, the forms of government that they were dealing with were quite different than the kinds of things that we encounter today. So the church had to think in much broader terms than we do, say, living in the United States or living in the 21st century. Now, there's another very interesting principle. And that is the principle that also limits and narrows the power of the state, and that the church calls the principle of subsidiarity. Say, what's subsidiarity? Subsidiarity says that a community of the higher order should not interfere in the internal life of the community of a lower order, except in case of great need. (coughs) So you say, okay, that sounds very abstract. What does that mean? Well, let's think about some of those other spheres, like the family the family is prior to the state the family is also much smaller than the state so in terms of communities and their power and strengths the state is clearly significantly more powerful than the family the last thing you want right is the state coming after your family <laughs> right just imagine if the prosecutor is after you and you got to go hire a lawyer Think of the resources the state has versus the resources that you would have to be able to even afford a lawyer, right? That's a big problem. That's why one of the reasons we say, well, maybe you shouldn't commit crimes. Well, that's true, right? Don't commit crimes. But the family is much smaller and weaker. And yet the family has an internal life that's entirely private and whole unto itself. And so the principle of subsidiarity says the state should not involve itself in the private internal matters of individual families. That's a small community with a life unto itself, and its privacy and individual rights need to be respected. Similarly with the church. The state should not be interfering in the functions of this other divine institution, namely the church. Now you say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. What about if like, there's an abusive parent or an abusive priest? Well, then the state had better intervene. Because in those cases... The smaller community is failing in its fundamental mission. If you abuse your children, your children are there expecting the right of being properly cared for by a parent. And so if you're violating the fundamental mission of the family, you can't raise the wall of family privacy to protect that violation. And the state can reasonably look in and say, whoa, this is not legitimate. Same thing with the church. So while we have distinct spheres of authority between the church, the state, and the family, we also recognize under the principle of subsidiarity that while there's a general plan of non-interference, in cases of great need or abuse, the other groups can indeed intervene. Okay, and that's a very important principle to keep in mind. All right. <coughs> now, having said all of that, There are so-called forms of government that are inherently illegitimate, illegitimate insofar as they undermine the purpose of government. The first one <clears throat> is totalitarianism or as the church calls it sometimes collectivism in which the individual rather than being the end of society his good the individual is merely a cog in the machine of society. You said what would be an example of something like this? Well How about absolute monarchy? How about communism? How about Nazism? In all of these cases, the individual lives solely for the purpose of serving the state. But since the purpose of the state is to protect the individual rights and expression, that is incompatible. So these forms of government are actually not forms of government at all. They're forms of non-government. They're forms of assault on government, and the church rejects them fundamentally. But just as you can have government that's too strong in the forms of totalitarian or collectivism, you could also have forms of government that are too weak. And that is the other side of the equation that's just as problematic. these cases, what has happened is the government, which is given by God as an authority to help us meet our fully human ends, has been abandoned in the name of some alleged governmental principle. In the one case, the government squelches and destroys the individual. That's the totalitarian collectivist, the communist mode or the nazist mode. On the other hand, government is entirely non-existent, leaving the individual entirely subject to whoever wants to do anything he wants to him. And so anarchism or extreme libertarianism would make that person so vulnerable. In both of these cases, we see the elimination of the state or the totalization of the state. And these extremes are rejected by the church because man must have the freedom to pursue his spiritual vocation. And to do that, he usually requires peace. And peace requires the order of a properly stable civil government. Now, given all that, what does the church prefer? And I want to emphasize this. This is their preference. Remember, you can have non-absolute monarchies, which are just fine. You could have an aristocracy. You could have something like the structure of the Doge in Venice back in the Middle Ages. All of those could be legitimate forms of government so long as they meet the proper ends. But the church's preference would be regimes that observe the principles of balanced powers and spheres of responsibility to keep government within its proper bounds. And you probably can already anticipate this, but republics are exquisite at meeting these two objectives. Keep in mind, a republic is a mixed regime. Okay, let me just explain that. Let me use the, in our own country as an example. In our country, we have the one, the few, and the many. What is the one? Well, in the state government, you have one version of this. And in the federal government, you have another. Let's use the federal government. Federal government, the one is the executive. And of course, that's the presidency. The few is our Congress, right, that pass the laws. The many are the people of the several states. And the people have certain powers within their states to do certain things, like elect certain people, right? And the Congress has certain powers, and the presidency has certain powers. And we then, in our Constitution, we separate the powers. We even have a doctrine called the separation of powers. And the idea is that the different powers can help balance one against one another. So, republics are very, very useful for this. Federal republics are especially good in dealing with large countries. You say, what's the difference in a republic and a federal republic? Well, the word federal just means you have two levels. So we have a national government, right, based in Washington, but we also have 50 state governments, each of which is sovereign in and of itself. So you have the one, the few, and the many, the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary at both the national level and the state level. And our Constitution has to sort of figure out, right, which entity does what thing. The benefits of federalism of having two levels like this and our 10th Amendment preserves powers not granted to the central government, they're reserved to the states and the people, the benefits of this sort of system is that it's very helpful for preserving the liberties and the local governance of peoples, and to recognize that the people from Montana are different from the people from Florida, from the people from Oregon, and of course from we people here in Ohio. How we want to self-order ourselves differs from some other state, and that is absolutely just fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. The catch, though, is this. Republics are very complex. And getting anything done nationally requires... Working together and compromise. And notice that this is by design. Our founding fathers, in fact, if you go back and read them, they wanted a republic rather than a democracy for the United States. And they wanted this for several reasons. And one of the reasons is they were simply afraid that we're too passionate. And that we'd get upset about something, and we would quickly do something. So they thought, we got to slow these people down, right? So we're not even going to make it easy for them to pass laws. They're going to have to get through the People's House, right, the House of Representatives, and then they're going to have to get through the deliberative, thoughtful Senate. Okay, <laughs> Two houses to slow us down. And it's true, right? Americans are very passionate. We're different from the British. They're very deliberative, stiff upper lip. But they think through everything, right? Of course they do. <laughs> and we're like, we're getting very passionate. So... There's a principle of benefit here that requires us to slow down and to think. But the catch is, we have to work together. Now, you, as citizens, participate and ought to participate in civil society. You already know you have a duty to participate in your family, right? as mothers, as fathers, as spouses, as children. And you have a duty, and you will have duties in the church, right? You're going to want to be a participant in the community of the church to use your talents and your treasure and yourself to help your fellow, uh, your fellow man help take care of the priest and do good and kind and generous things for other people. And, of course, you have a spiritual, moral, Catholic responsibility to your civil society to be an active member You may not run for office, but you might. But, you know, you may advocate for certain things that you think are important. And, of course, you get to vote. You get to serve on juries. And you might not view this as a benefit, but you get to pay taxes, right? Um, And thus, you help pay for and support the many great and good things that your state and that your country do. Now, none of your decisions as a Catholic about your membership in and participation in either of the major political parties in the United States is determined by the church. You can be a Catholic and in good conscience be a Democrat. You can be a Catholic and in good conscience be a Republican. Why? Because neither of the major U.S. political parties is either anarchist or collectivist though the extreme left of the Democratic Party borders on collectivist communism, just as the extreme right of the Republican Party borders on anarchist libertarianism. But the political parties themselves are constantly trying to sort of hem in (laughs) those people. Because to be a Republican is not to be anarchist, and to be a Democrat is not to be communist. With one glaring exception, which I'll get to shortly. The platforms of the two parties aim at different ways of achieving the common good, differing on ends as well as on means. And for the most part, none of those ends or means are intrinsically evil. We simply disagree on the best way to self-organize in order to fulfill our common good. Accordingly, we ought to be very comfortable with compromise when we're legislating. Because we just have differences of opinion and horse trading should not be a problem. What's curious though is that we're at least currently subject to extreme polarization. However, our political parties are not enemies. Al Qaeda Al-Qaeda is an enemy. If you're a Democrat, the Republicans are not your enemies. If you're a Republican, the Democrats are not your enemies. Political opponents? Sure. But like politi- like sports opponents in a basketball game, you can be very passionate. But before and after the game, what do all the players do? Shake hands. Because you're in a common ordered system and we're members of a common constitution. So political demonization, describing and spinning every action by the other party as Hitlerian or evil, is immoral, imprudent, And disingenuous. Certainly, the political people that say things in demonizing terms don't usually believe what they're saying because that very night they go off and have dinner as friends with members of the other political party, and the next day they'll work together in the same projects. The trouble is, their followers often do believe what they're hearing, and that is politically irresponsible in the extreme. So we must reject the rhetoric of polarization and instead always seek peace and compromise with one another. Now, I mentioned one glaring exception, and that, of course, is the issue of abortion. Abortion is an intrinsic moral wrong because the unborn child is a human person possessing all the same inalienable rights as you And me, which side of the womb you happen to be on does not change who and what you are. So the church absolutely opposes abortion because it is murder. Now, the Democratic Party does advocate for abortion. However, that same party seeks many other perfectly laudable and noble political ends for the common good. And as a voter, you may decide prudently that choosing a candidate from the Democratic Party is better than, say, a candidate from the Republican Party because political choices are never about single issues but about the people that you entrust to properly seek the common good. You may choose Republicans sometimes. You may choose Democrats sometimes. It's not a single issue matter. Similarly, If you're a Republican, you can choose a Republican candidate because Republican Party also seeks many noble political ends for the common good. As a voter, you can decide prudently that choosing a candidate from the Republican Party is better than a Democratic candidate because political choices, again, are never single-issue matters. They're about the people that you entrust to properly represent and seek the common good. Regardless of your political choice, which is a matter of conscience for you as a Catholic and as an American citizen, there are two important caveats. The first is oppose abortion absolutely because it is murder. The church takes this very, very seriously. And second, never demonize the other party because nearly all of our differences politically are merely differences in how we should organize, how we should order, how we should pay for, how we should do this. Republics require compromise by definition. Political polarization makes compromise a dirty word and undermines the good order of government, which is necessary for the good of man. Therefore, we need to calm down politically. And that applies to both of our political parties. All right. Now, let's make a little bit more of a definition of the notion of the common good. What exactly are we talking about? Well, the church says that the common good is the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fundamentally and more easily. It includes three essential elements. The first element is respect for the person as such. The fundamental unit of human dignity is the individual human person. Every single human being is made in the image of God. And is that one lost sheep that Jesus would die to redeem? That's how huge individual human beings are. Every single human being is immortal. There's nothing in this entire world that compares to your neighbor. There's nothing in this entire world that compares to you. That's how much more valuable you are than a tree, than a rock, than a glass of water, and your car. You are enormously valuable. And God loves you and dies for you. That's how valuable you are. So if that's true of us, that's how much God loves us. God loves our neighbor the same way. And therefore, we must respect one another and respect persons in and of themselves. So in the name of the common good, republics, democracies, aristocracies, monarchies, all regimes must preserve and protect the inalienable natural rights of their people. This means that society must respect Fundamental freedoms, including, and the church specifies, including the right to act according to a, as they call it, a sound norm of conscience. In other words, if you're a crazy person and you, in good conscience, think you need to go kill a bunch of people, this is not good conscience. (laughs) This means you're nuts, right? But the right to act according to a sound norm of conscience To safeguard privacy and to rightly and freely act in matters of religion. Conscience, privacy, and religion. Three critical freedoms. And you can see, of course, why these are all very important to the church. But they're also all elements that we've traditionally thought of as our natural rights. And to respect people as such means you have to recognize that they have the right to choose. And ultimately, this this goes back to a divine principle. God does not, even though he's ultimately the infinitely authoritative in all matters, he does not then legislate everything himself. He allows smaller bodies down the line to make decisions as to how they wish to order and constitute themselves. God doesn't tell you how you should restructure your household budget. The state doesn't tell you how to structure your household budget either. The church doesn't tell you how to structure your household budget. That is an authority that lies in you. But it's derived because where did that authority originally find its origin? All authority comes from God. You say, so God could do all that. Sure. But he doesn't because he wants you to grow up. (laughs) And you can't grow up if you never get to freely act. So growing up, maturity, fullness requires the freedom to act. And states that respect the free vocations, the free development of their people, create laws and protections that enable people to act freely. And that means you've got to respect their privacy. That means you have to allow them to act according to sound norms of conscience. And that critically means you must allow them to pursue God in their own way. Dr. yes, I do have a question here. Do you you have a Something you could cite for that, because what what I see is a uh, I have a syllabus of errors here from Blessed Pope Pius the Ninth. where one of the condemned propositions is uh, every man is free to embrace and profess that religion which he, led by the light of reason, thinks to be the true religion. So well,
1: you're you have you're on that? you're
0: yeah. This is in the Catechism, and you're confusing two kinds of freedoms. Political freedoms are different from moral freedoms or metaphysical freedoms. The truth is, okay, none of us I, I, are I, I free. Guess. None of us are free to pursue evil, and yet we are okay, free to I, pursue. I, I, thought I, I thought I heard something about freedom of religion. Yes, we it. do. We do have the freedom of religion, according to the church. It's as a political freedom. It's not a metaphysical freedom. If you choose to worship God in a way that's hateful and wicked, God will hold you accountable for that. All the while, having made you a creature that has the ability to do it. So, he respects the structure of your nature such that you can do this, but it doesn't follow from the fact that you can, that you should. So, it is not morally permissible for us to do something wrong by worshiping the wrong God. But the state does not make laws and should not make laws governing which God we ought to worship. So, we've got to distinguish different kinds of freedoms. Okay, the second element. First, the common good includes respect for the person as such. The second is the social well-being and development of the group itself. So first, the individual. Secondly, the group. Now, public authorities have to sort out and arbitrate between competing social interests, all in the name of the common good. But there are certain fundamental aspects of human life that are essential even to function as a human being, let alone a citizen, such as food, shelter, water, clothing, right? If you're sick, you're not going to be able to function as a citizen, If you're uneducated, you're not going to be able to function as a citizen, at least not very well. So, different societies constitute themselves in ways that recognize that these are important things that the group ought to contribute to when the individual or the family fails. Notice the principle of subsidiary still holds. So the church insists that we ought to find lawful work and provide for ourselves. But some people find themselves in a situation where that's not possible. Let's suppose you have a, a debilitating mental illness. Well, how are you gonna hold a job? Right? This is gonna be a major problem. So initially, the church would look and expect the family to try to help with that. But as some of you've known who's some of you know who've experienced severe mental illness in your families or the sorts of things that actually become violent, the family can be at the end of its line. It can't do anything further. And at that point, we need a higher structure based on our aggregate powers, the benefits of our civil society, to help protect and enable protection for such people and those families. And so the state is able to intervene and help there. Each political society has to decide for itself how best to self-order through private means and through public means to achieve these individual goods. The principle of subsidiarity implies that a purely private reliance is untenable because, in even the best cases of private charitable action, government still has a duty to protect the fundamental positive rights of its citizens while recognizing their freedom. So, just to take the United States as as an example, currently, 22% of all collected tax revenue is redistributed to the people in need in some form. I want you to think about that. 22% of all tax dollars is aimed at helping one another. And then, get this, on top of that, and I'll use 2019 as as the statistic, private charities raised, ready for this number? $450 billion from the American people. Now, granted, not all of that went to our own people in need. Some of it went to people in need abroad. But this shows the commitment that Americans have to taking care of one another. Right? I mean, if you're hungry, there's some place for you to get food, isn't there? If you need medical care, they might ask you, well, do you have your insurance card? You're like, no, I don't. They're like, well, we'll treat you anyway. (laughs) Right? We take care of each other. Other countries might have a different order. They might not have as much in private charity. So Sweden, for example, has a much more profound public health care system, public benefit system, and they tax more. Well, they might not have as much in private charity. This is not a problem. Every society can self-order in such a way that they try to meet these requirements to help one another. The point is that it's a critical part of what it means to have the common good, namely that we take care of each other in times of need. Sometimes those needs are momentary, like when you have a major hurricane disaster, right? Or a flooding member back in New Orleans. And sometimes it's constant, as with the person who is unable to, um, you know, function in society at all, our mentally ill case, or somebody with a severe physical disability. And the third, there's a third condition of the common good. The third condition is peace. The stability and security of a just order. The most complete version of the common good occurs within the political community. It is the role of the state to defend and promote the common good of civil society, its citizens, and the intermediary bodies. So the political is critically important to achieving the ends of man. Furthermore, just as there is a, let's call it a a state-level common good, so there is even a universal common good. Requiring the community of nations to act for the good of all, and you can also see this, right? Some nations suffer severe catastrophes, and they can't handle it. And what happens? Ships start to arrive, helicopters start to arrive, planes start to arrive from many, many, many nations. The United States is always there, right out in front, right with planes filled with food and medical supplies and you see these types of things coming in from countries all over the world all to help and we view this now as completely well of course but this is this is a new thing (laughs) this is new it's extraordinary and it's due to the principle of recognizing a neighborly principle in people that are very very far away And the church thinks very highly of this. (laughs) Because remember, the church is the first fully transnational ethical organization. And when we people as of several different states and countries come together to help seek the common good for someone else, the church just sits back and like this is what we've been hoping for. This is terrific. So these sorts of acts are highly, highly laudable. And they're elements of a common good that recognizes a brotherhood and, dare I say it, this is what the church calls it, a solidarity of all for all. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the first of these three conditions, the respect for the dignity of the person. As we said earlier, because rights are prior to civil societies, civil societies have a duty to respect the natural rights of persons. Society has to recognize the importance of those rights, and it is a, it is a mission of the church to occasionally remind societies that that is their responsibility. And this is a political role for the church. The church views itself as, think of it like a, um, a moral touchstone, and so when sometimes when certain wrongs are being committed on a grand scale, you will see the church say something. right? One of the most obvious cases was the way Pope John Paul II uh, spoke about the evils of what was going on in the communist bloc countries. And his voice of moral authority was not only damning to the communists, it was inspiring for the victims. And it helped rally and rouse the spirit of the people in Poland and the other countries that ultimately helped them throw off the shackles of their oppression. So, the family, the state, and the church are three distinct spheres of authority. But when abuses are committed in any of the three, the other two have the right and sometimes the responsibility to say and or do something about it. Now, respect for the other person Ultimately means seeing the other person as another self, just as I am a self. And of course, this sounds familiar to our ears, right? You say, what does this sound like? And so we have to treat others in the same fundamentally dignified way that we treat ourselves. Now, the church recognizes a problem here. You say, what's the problem? We cannot, through legislation of the state and its coercive powers, make people good on the inside. Love of neighbor is a matter of free moral choice. So, to have a state in which the common good is maximally pursued requires what? Conversion. Conversion. St. Augustine in the City of God talked about this too. He went so far as to say a true republic, by which he meant a regime that maximally pursued the common good, was possible only when the faith animated the hearts of the citizenry with charity. So one of the things the church cautions us against is confusing the legitimate powers of the state to achieve many elements of the common good with the power of the individual infused with charity to fully achieve the common good. But the key for that is the powers of the church to augment and bring to human beings a salvation that converts them from selfishness to love for their neighbor, to treat one another from the inner man with care and love. How far does this go? Well, Jesus tells us. Remember the poor. Or again, if you have done this to the least of these, you have done it to me. So just because people are less talented than you are, just because they didn't come from the same side of the tracks, just because they don't have the same education, doesn't mean they're any less valuable insofar as the love of God is concerned. And Jesus makes a point of reaching out to the poor. And the Old Testament God also condemns the Old Testament Israelites Because they oppress the poor instead of caring for them. So, the respect for the dignity of the person includes recognizing the dignity of all persons, especially those who are in need. And this includes the poor. So, the duty of charity, charity is a duty, And it's an extensive duty. We've talked before about our duty to forgive our enemies. That is a very difficult challenge. And that is part of our charity. Now, the church recognizes that you should not hate your enemy, but you may hate the things your enemy does. You say, well, that's a fine distinction. Yes, it is. (laughs) It's a fine distinction. But it's helpful, right? Because part of the reason you hate your enemy is because of the things your enemy is doing. And so what the church is trying to remind us of is this. We were all once enemies of God. And yet God reached out while we were enemies and died for us and loved us back toward himself. And we then stopped doing the things that were hateful. Well, in the same way, the person that is doing hateful things to you is also redeemable. The things that they've done, those are bad. They don't become good. And so you clearly hate those things. You're also entitled to resist those hateful deeds. But what we mustn't do is hate the person. We must love our enemies. And we also have to find a way to use the talents that we've been given and the means that we have to help one another achieve the common good in our spiritual voc- vocation. We should accordingly practice generosity, kindness, and the sharing of goods. And I guess now we would probably call it in services. Because again, we do have talents. Remember, We do not exist solely for our own sakes. We exist for the sake of others. But we also do not exist solely for the sake of others. We also exist for our own sakes. They're both true. Balancing those twin principles in our lives is something that each one of us must carve out for ourselves. We're members of multiple communities all at the same time. You're a family member. You have friendships. You participate in social associations or clubs or societies. You're employed. You enjoy all forms of entertainments. You're politically involved. You either are or you're about to become a member of the church. And of course, you're a human being. That's a lot. I admit that. You cannot be everywhere, of course. You cannot be there for everyone. True. So you have to decide carefully and thoughtfully about how best to employ your unique set of personal talents and wealth. You must participate in the human community or else your humanity crumbles because we're communal at our core, just as God is. So God's charity is the pattern for our charity to love one another. So think about that as you come into the church and you join this community of love. What are your skill sets? What are your talents? What are the things that you can do And bring to show care and help the people around you. All right. And on that note, any questions? (laughs) All right, I'm going to deactivate this thing. And I suddenly don't remember how to do that.